After opening itself up to the world's markets in the late 1970s, China's vast pool of resources and labor has been deployed into what has now become the second largest economy in the world. This newfound power intrudes into a status quo of US dominance, largely unbroken since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. Nowhere is this tension clearer than on the island of Taiwan. China may be one step closer to attacking Taiwan, staging massive military exercises miles off the Taiwanese coast. Senior defense officials in Taipei say 12 Chinese warships surrounded the island, simulating a sea and air blockade for the second time in eight months. Only 160 kilometers from the Chinese mainland, Taiwan is a nation whose sovereignty grates against China's national wish to reunite with its lost territory a nation whose democracy is a canary in the East China Sea. In the distance of the Asia-Pacific sits the sunburnt continent of Australia, itself torn by its alliance with the United States and its most important trading partner, China. After the Australian government called for investigations into the origins of COVID-19 in China, as well as the banning of Huawei's 5G services in Australia, Australia has been struck with a cold response. Beijing has slapped a brutal 80% import tariff on all Aussie barley, just hours after agreeing to an independent review into the origins of COVID-19. Joining me now it's a fool's game to try and guess what may lie in the future. But Kevin McGee is someone who can help us try. Australia's official representative in Taiwan between 2011 and 2014, ambassador to Saudi Arabia, 2008 to 2011. He's also held other important diplomatic postings in China and Russia. In this conversation, we hear about Kevin's deeply informed views on the importance of Taiwan, Australia's standing overseas, and Kevin's experiences in Russia and Saudi Arabia. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Could you explain the importance of of Taiwan in relation to the foreign policies of of China? Well, that's a very interesting question to start with. Um, Well, Taiwan uh, is a central uh, concern of the government of the People's Republic of China. Since 1949, um, the People's Republic of China has uh, been in a position, has maintained the position that Taiwan would uh, return to the control of the mainland. You've got to look at it at a, from a historical point of view, and I'm sure many of the listeners will know that uh, during uh, Taiwan from 1895 to 1945 was occupied by Japan after the Treaty of Simasheki in 1895. After the end of the Second World War, because of the Potsdam Declaration and also um, the Allies had decided that they would return Taiwan to the Republic of China, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government, the KMT regime, uh, as um, one of the allied powers. So from 1945 to 1949, uh, Taiwan was ruled from Nanjing, the capital of the Republic of China. Now, as you'll be aware that the Chinese Civil War was raging uh, at that period of time. And uh, in 1949, in October 1949, uh, the PRC uh, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, uh, declared the uh, PRC to be uh, uh, the new regime, the new government of China. Chiang Kai-shek's government, the KMT, retreated across the Taiwan Straits to Taiwan, bringing with him around about 2 million people 
majority of his army, many of his civil servants, and many of the followers from the KMT, and they settled in Taiwan. The, um, the, they also brought with them uh, the, national, the gold, the national treasury, uh, and uh, the National Museum, and most importantly, the Palace Museum, which is the finest collection of Chinese art in the world, in Taipei. Uh, from the, that period, but of course, Chiang Kai-shek, having lost the mainland, he ensconced himself in Taiwan and said that he remained the legitimate government of all of China and that he would return to recover the mainland. And so that was the position of the Republic of China or Taiwan right up until effectively the 1990s, that both countries claimed that Taiwan was part of China. Now, that period of time, Taiwan was controlled by people who had come from the mainland from the KMT. But the majority of, of Taiwanese, that they're called the Benshenren in Chinese, and the people from the mainland were called the Weishenren, the Benshenren basically um, had a sense of nationalism which developed considerably as Taiwan democratized in the 1990s. Now, Taiwan was under martial law until 1987, from 49 to 87, uh, and basically, effectively, it was one-party state or a military dictatorship. Getting in 87, martial law was lifted, and then through the 90s under President Li Denghui, who was the first Taiwanese-born president, uh, the country, uh, and KMT president, uh, the country democratized. And with, with democracy uh, came um, a nationalist desire that Taiwan should be separate from the mainland. Um, and the old certainties that both sides of the strait said Taiwan is part of Ta of China ebbed away. Now, they have certainly not changed in the PRC. The PRC maintains its claim that it is a legitimate government of all China, and it is also, and Taiwan is part of China. Now, the any country that establishes diplomatic relations with the PRC, including Australia, has to um, recognize that there is one government of China, the PRC. Um, however, countries, Western countries like the Australia and the United States and Canada and such have, have recognized Beijing as a legitimate government, and they don't recognize necessarily the sovereignty of Taiwan. But our position, uh, the Australian government position, has long been that uh, they acknowledged the Chinese claim that Taiwan was part of um the PRC, but did not accept the one China principle, which the PRC puts that it certainly is. Other countries, of course, mainly in the global south, have accepted that Chinese position. So we don't recognize the sovereign, sovereign sovereignty of Taiwan as an independent state, but at the same token, we don't support uh, a change in the status quo uh, by the use of force. And this is very much the case of most Western countries. Um, since 1949, um, from Mao Zedong's time right through to now, the consistent position, as I said, that is the mainland that Taiwan would return, and they reserved the right to use military force or any other force to uh, uh, to unite the country. However, um, the preference has always been to try and achieve peaceable reunification, um, uh, basically through of politically isolating Taiwan and, and cutting down its diplomatic space or its diplomatic um, options, 
but also offering it economic goodies. And that's particularly been the case uh, since Deng Xiaoping um, era, you know, the post-Mao era. Uh, so they Chinese have never actually said that they would um, uh, abjure from the use of force, but they actually have not used actually use of force um, against Taiwan other than these military exercises. And in my view, and the view of many other scholars, is that a lot of what the Chinese are doing in these days is you know, political military theater, you know, demonstrating to Taiwan and to the government of the DPP and to the um, uh, Americans and otherwise that they are serious about this. Um, and I, I, what has happened is that after the loss of martial law, uh, there, there was a rise of the Democratic uh, 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 Progress Party, the DPP, Min Jindang, uh, and they're the, currently the, uh, they've been in power twice and they're currently the government of Taiwan. Now, they don't support de jure independence. They say Taiwan is in effect an independent or the Republic of China is, is an independent country because that still remains to this day the official name of Taiwan, the Republic of China. Taiwan is actually like an unofficial name. It's a geographic place. It's the name of the island. I believe as well that its constitution, if I remember correctly, um, the constitution of Taiwan still makes reference to its sovereignty over China as well as its old power, so including Mongolia from previously. That's absolutely correct. The, the constitution was amended uh, in the uh, 1990s in the time of... Um, of uh, Li Donghui, and basically what it says is that there is one China, and the Republic of China is a legitimate government. However, there are two areas of control. There is the Republic of Air, a Republic of China area, which is Taiwan, Jinmen, Matsu, and um, Penghu, and uh, and then there is the communist-controlled area. So it actually is, to this day, the ROC constitution is a one-China constitution. And, and that serves a purpose because um, the as far back as 1979, um, with Deng Xiaoping's approval, Ye Jianying, who was a senior member of the Politburo back then, said there were four conditions in which uh, China would use force against Taiwan. One is declaration of independence. The second one would be the development of nuclear weapons. The third one would be the positioning of significant military forces from other countries there. And the fourth one would be if there was a total breakdown of law and order, and then they reserved the right to use military force uh, in those circumstances. Now, the first one is the real red line. Uh, China would have to would feel that it would need to act militarily if there was a de jure uh, declaration of independence. But both both major parties in Taiwan, the KMT and the DPP, know that that's a red line, and they're not going to do that. Now, as I've said before, President Tsai Ing-wen has clearly said. We don't need to do that because we're already an independent country because we're the Republic of China. Um, so they fudged this um, along, you know, on on the, these lines. The most countries in the West, uh, including Australia, we support the status quo and say that any reunification would need to be on the basis of mutual agreement, not on the use of uh, use of force. Um, and um, as I said before, the the Chinese have never said they won't use force, but they actually, those four conditions, and they've never walked them back from 1979, up to be the basic, you know, the trigger points. 
Now, in the mid-90s, they also passed the anti-secession law. And the anti-secession law actually basically authorizes the, the government of China to take action if the country of Taiwan secedes uh, from, from China and declares de jure independence. Now, why? just to come back, uh, this is a very long-winded explanation, but you've got to understand these contexts. To come back to your initial question, why is it important is that from 1949 onwards, the, 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 uh, the Chinese have seen, uh, the, the government in Beijing has seen Taiwan as being two things. One, a lost part of the country, and one of the most important things that they've talked about is recovering the territories, lost territories. Now, they recovered in 1997, Hong Kong from the British. In 1999, Macau from the Portuguese. And they say the last area to, to recover is Taiwan, which they say was illegally taken from them by the Japanese in 1895. And then uh, it uh, is being occupied by um the KMT, and now the DPP, or the, the remnants of the Republic of China ever since. And the second point is, so this, sorry, let me just finish that, say that that's been an essential core of nationalism and legitimacy for the Communist Party. So for them to walk away from, from that, it would be undermining very much their, um, their legitimacy and their claims to Taiwan. Now, the second thing to be remembered is in the minds of Beijing, and this is not necessarily the minds of Taipei or the minds of Washington or uh, Tokyo, in the minds of the Chinese Communist Party of China, the civil war is still going on. So it's un unresolved that the KMT were defeated and retreated there. So they had to to, to complete the nationalize the, the national identity, the the, uh, the the creation of a, the full China. They have to finish the civil war and take over the mainland, or have an agreement and have some sort. Now through the years, the Chinese have made various offers. Uh, I came back to 1979 was a very important year because that's after the Maoist era when Deng Xiaoping. We talked about those four points before, but also at that time, the Chinese um, put forward the idea of one country, two systems, which would basically say that if um, previously to 79, Mao had said, we're just going to conquer, the, just like we liberated the rest of the country, we're going to conquer Taiwan. What that basically said was that Taiwan could maintain a high level of um, autonomy. autonomy. Autonomy, sorry, maybe. that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. The high level of autonomy and self-governance, um, if it said it was part of the of China, of the PRC, and there would be some areas, which obviously probably defense and foreign policy, which would be controlled by Beijing, but most of the other area would be self self-regulating. Now, this idea was actually put forward, as I said, in 1979 um, by Ye Jianying, um, and interestingly, it was merely meant for Taiwan. Now, the Taiwanese have never really been interested in this, and under the DPP, they're even less interested in that. And I'll come on to one last thing in a minute, which is the 92 consensus to understand all of this. But what they then said was that uh, um, the um, British, sorry, so the Chinese then used the one country, two system, which was originally designed for Taiwan, as a mechanism in the 80s to get the British to agree to withdraw from Hong Kong. And so you had the one country, two system, equally. Which is, I think, where most of the listeners would have heard, yeah. actually, this expression. Equally, yeah. sure. And that was put to the British in 1984 as a basis for handover. So, in other words, initially, and, and until very recently, uh, there would be a high level of autonomy in Hong Kong 
foreign policy and uh, defense would be controlled by Beijing, but a very high level of autonomy. And the same thing was applied to, to, with the Portuguese to Macau. Um, things have changed a lot, as you know, in Hong Kong in recent years. And, uh, um, you know, this, this, and what these changes here have undermined what support there may have been in Taiwan for one country, two systems. Would you say so that actually that experience in Hong Kong has damaged the possibility of reunification under two systems, one country for Taiwan? Uh, well, it's from, from the Taiwanese perspective, and I read a lot of Taiwanese material. I'm going to Taiwan again in a couple of weeks. Uh, to do some research there. But talking to Taiwanese, yes, uh, Taiwanese people and right up to the government, it just shows that uh, one country, two systems uh, is not really viable. But having said that, they've never actually accepted it from the start. I mean, the British and the Portuguese accepted it. The Taiwanese never accepted it. I mean, that's always been out there. Now, in 1992, so in order that, that they could start talking to each other and to find some way of getting some sort of uh, stability across the, the straits. And this is during the administration of President Lee Dunghui. Uh, and this is after the raise in military law, uh, mil uh, martial law, and uh, the, uh, the emergency for the suppression of the communist rebellion. That was also lifted in, in the late 80s too. That means that they could start talking. And they agreed on what's called the Singapore Consensus or the 92 Consensus. And that basically was a agreement uh, between uh, unofficial representatives of the ROC and the PRC meeting in Singapore in 92 had discussed this and come up with this, this consensus. And that was that there's one China, but two different interpretations of what it means. So it was a, a mechanism to allow them to talk to each other without giving up the PRC giving up its claim to Taiwan, or the ROC saying, well, we're sublimated, you know, we're under under Beijing. So the KMT has always accepted that as a basis, and that was a basis for a sort of economic agreement during President Ma, Ma, Ma Ying-jeou's period, which is the period I was representative in Taiwan. And they had, you know, agreement on, on a whole lot of things, uh, to, on trade and such. But even in Chen Shui-bian, the first DPP president, and then, but... The DPP, unlike the KMT, has never accepted that that policy. And the Chinese, the PRC, have always said that um, you have to accept that if you want to deal with us. And if you want to be able to go to the World Health Assembly or the ICAO meeting or things like that, which were happened under the Ma Ying-jeou administration, that was on the basis of you accepting the uh, the 92 consensus or the Singapore consensus. And of course, the DPP doesn't accept that. And that is one of the reasons why the PRC has refused to allow, despite all the problems with COVID and everything, that the, the, uh, the uh, um, Taiwanese to attend the WHA, which they were doing in the times of um, uh, Mai Ying-jeou. And they also attended some ICAO meetings and a few other uh, international meetings where statehood wasn't required, um, uh, and that—that's the sort of the red line for the Chinese. If if it's something that requires statehood, well, even if you accept the, you know, the ninety-two consensus, Taiwan can't go there, like in the UN or something like that. But where it doesn't, and another clear example of that is the WTO, um, where that was agreed. Now, 
Taiwan is a member of some international organizations um, and it was able to do that. And that's always been done on the basis of Taiwan uh, not being, uh, not uh, sorry, the in institution not acquiring full sovereignty to be a member. So from APEC, um, back in 1989, when APEC was established first by uh, the Kita, uh, by the Hawke government, and um, then in 92 it went towards, uh, it was established without Taiwan, Hong Kong, or um, China being members because of the complexity of dealing with this. So basically what happened was that in 92 they all three were allowed to join at the same time, and China wanted to join at APEC at the same time. Um, but it was not on the basis that Hong Kong and Macau, uh, sorry, Hong Kong and Taiwan uh, were not sovereign states. So they joined as Chinese Taipei, and of course Hong Kong joined as a British territory, later on to be, a, after 97, a Chinese SAR. The most significant of all of these was when China and when Taiwan was allowed to join the... Um, uh, WTO in 2001. Again, they joined at the same time as China. So in each of these instances where Taiwan has been able to join an international organization, it's been at the same time that the Chinese have been admitted. But, well, basically, usually when China's in there, it says, well, I, we represent Taiwan. They've got no right to join this organization. So it, it's leaves. I mean, they want, China wanted into APEC. Uh, we had leverage. We've been the Western parties to let them in, but you have to let Taiwan in on certain conditions, and likewise for the WTO. So they were all admitted at the same time. Um, so China, so Chi Taiwan is a member of the WTO, but it's a non-sovereign member. It's there as a territory, and it's called the Customs Territory of Taiwan, Jinmen, Matsu, and Penghu. Now, Taiwan is obviously the main island. Uh, Jinmen and Matsu are two small islands. Jinmen is only a several kilometers from the city of Xiamen in China, and they were retained by Chiang Kai-shek as sort of launching pads for his reconquest in the 1950s <laughs> of, of the mainland. So but, it seems like it's been invaded by tourists instead now. Absolutely. I, I don't know up. if you've been to Jinmen, but it's, I mean, it's amazing. You can see the big skyscrapers in, in, in Xiamen from Jinmen clearly. And Penghu is the islands which are in between uh, Taiwan and the men in the middle of the Taiwan Straits. So it's and it's very close, very close to the Chinese mainland oh, as well. Jinmen is seven kilometers from the mainland. Yeah, and there's I think there's a ferry service that's actually been established now oh, between yeah. the islands and the mainland. There has been, yeah, yeah. there has been, and that, that's a that's like an accident of history because, as I said before, as they retreated across to Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek and his generals' plan was to go to Tai to Taiwan to re rearm and then come back and you know and then have civil war mark two and reconquer the country. And to do that, they maintained these series of islands, including Jinmen and Matsu, which are just off the coast. Matsu is about 15 kilometers off the coast, and Jinmen is seven. So they're very close, you know, they're, uh, you know for that. But they're still part, so they're part of the the Taiwan's uh, membership of the, um, the WTO. So I hope that's answered your question. No, thoroughly, thank you. Um, well, let's bring, Australia into the picture because Australia seems to come to probably an incorrect description would be that it's it's a fork where there has to be a choice between either their most important ally the United States and then their most important trading partner China 
what do you think of this uh, dilemma? Do you think it's it's a false one or it's a reality? Well, countries make choices, don't they, uh, on all of this? And Australia, if you have a look at the policies beginning with the Whitlam government and continuing right through to what, which was the high point of the relationship in 2014, Australia has always tried to uh, hedge its bets. Um, it always saw China as a potential rising power. I mean, our first ambassador, um, Stephen Fitzgerald, who's still with us, yeah, wrote back in 1976 predicting that then China, which was very poor, very populous but very poor, one day would be a, a, a major economic power. So even back then, people thought that China was going to be a power. It really took off. You know, you had the reform and opening policy in the 80s, and then China became in the 90s and 2000s. And so we went from being a country with a very small export market in China, relatively speaking, to it becoming by far our largest trading partner. Now, before I go back a little bit in the history, it's interesting to note if you look at the DFAT figures, um, China is around about 35% of our uh, foreign trade. And if you add up, and then second comes Japan, then comes the Republic of Korea, then comes the US, and then sometimes Singapore, and sometimes other countries, even Taiwan gets up there occasionally. But if, if you, uh, uh, the, the trade with China is equal to the value most years of the number two, three, four, and five. So it's so dominant in economics. So we became very much economically dominated because we were, as the Chinese say, you know, Jingji Hubushin, which means we are compatible. Uh, we have the natural resources. We're reliable suppliers. It's not that far away. And they, uh, they had the market. And so we had friendly relationship. But all this time, the governments have always maintained the American alliance. And for a long time, and, and one senior Chinese diplomat said to me is that um, when we established relations with Australia in 1972, we were well aware that you were an American ally, you're with ANZUS, and we can live with that. What they aren't very happy about is what's basically happened in the last couple of years, uh, where it's gone way beyond ANZUS, uh, the American alliance, and the whole change. But We'll come back to that in, in a minute. So for many years, we balanced that, and economics in China was just seen as a event. And a lot of our prosperity, I mean, the, the standard of living and the prosperity we have in Australia, particularly in Western Australia, but in Australia generally, uh, we'd be a much poorer country if it wasn't for the China market. And in fact, studies have said that if there were a war over Taiwan or something like that, and our exports to China would be uh, stopped, uh, the Australian economy would go in, in, not into a recession, it would go into a depression. Yeah, it's that important as a market. One of the reasons why during the GFC, um, Australia was also able to still have such a very, like a strong dollar and have a huge amount of government revenues was thanks to huge exports of iron exactly. ore that was going to China. That's right. Hey, iron ore, but there are others. Hey, iron ore is the single biggest, but there's also LNG and there's coal and there's other mineral resources. And of course, education and tourism became very important. So they've been greatly reduced, partly because of COVID and partly because of the cooling of the relationship. But anyway, the high point in the relationship is 2014, because three things happened then. Uh, we 
concluded our nine-year, nine-and-a-half-year negotiations on a free trade agreement with China, which gave us a, a lot of access into their market and particularly into the services market, um, which we were able to exploit. Um, and that uh, the CHAFTA, or the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, came into effect in 2015. But the negotiations were finished in 2014. And it, during my career, I had some input into that uh, in the earlier parts of that. That was a very, very long and detailed negotiation uh, with uh, the FTA. And after New Zealand, we were the first OEC, second OECD country to have a, uh, um, a free trade agreement with the PRC. And it opened many, many advantages for Australia. Also, 2014 saw the um, uh, the signing of the visit of um, uh, Xi Jinping to Australia, and he addressed the parliament. And uh, the third thing was that they, uh, Australia signed a strategic partnership agreement yeah, uh, between Austra China and Australia. And again, this was one of the few of the OECD or Western countries that had that level of um, agreement. So things looked really, really positive then. Um, but things started turning around later on. And um, it's partly it's due to certain things. I mean, China, let's be frank, China had expectations. You talked about the GFC. Um, and I've talked to Chinese diplomats. And I've seen it written in Chinese think tanks and such. They basically said, well, they took credit for saving Australia from the, the GFC. And there's an element of truth in that, as you just said. But therefore, having done that, having given us an FTA, being the second OECD country to get an FTA with China, and you know, having sent you know, good relations, they expected more from us. And um, there was a bit of a more tribute. Push. Well, you, I'm not going to go and say that because that sounds sort of like. The, I don't think that's 100% accurate. Imperial times. Yeah. I know. Well, yeah. imperial times. I don't think that's 100% accurate. But what they expected more, they expected more of us. And basically what they got was um, three things that really pissed them off. And this is what started the relationship. It was their own activities, their own activities here, which, you know, and we'll all remember Senator Dastiari. Could you maybe actually reintroduce that idea? Well, the issue. Yeah. The idea that they, you know, were trying to influence Australia um, and Australian politics and such like that, which then led to the um, counting foreign intervention legislation, and also raised concerns about China's role uh, in in Australia. So that was one thing that concerned them. Uh, and then the second thing, and this is often seen as by the Chinese, and I'd have to be frank, a lot of my former DFAT colleagues hold this view, that the decision to uh, deny um, Huawei access to the 5G um, thing was a watershed for the Chinese. Now, they expected, having delivered, like I said before, the expectations they had, that we would do that. Now, you've got to remember, at that time in 2018, um, uh, and interestingly, just from a historical footnote, this decision was the last meeting of the National Security Committee of Cabinet chaired by Prime Minister Morrison was the one that took this decision because he was rolled a couple of days later. So we took a decision that we should um, say that Huawei should not have any input whatsoever into the uh, 
the 5G. Now, at that time, the British position under the May government had been that they could have the Chinese could have 35% of the market in non-national secure areas. Canada, Germany, France, none of those countries had taken a position to ban. And in fact, the only two places that had taken a position to ban Huawei from 5G to, 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 was the United States and Taiwan. So we were up there. We were the, the, the third country to do that. And we did it absolutely. And the Chinese were shocked that we did that because they expected they'd get at least what they were getting in Britain. Now, the British position has changed. Uh, and it changed largely under American pressure. And, and I'll be frank. Yeah. So it's become more strict to, oh, yeah. with well, regards to Huawei. Well, the, yeah. the US took a position that talking to all countries that they wanted to, and it's all part of this technological war that goes on between the US and, and uh, China, is that keep Huawei out because they're in intelligence danger and that, you know, we just want to keep our technology clean. Now, the interesting thing is that at that time, the United States technologically on 5G was way behind China. There were only three countries that had 5G at that time, China, Finland, and Sweden. Uh, and interestingly, the, the, the cost to, in if we had gone with Huawei to set up our 5G, it would have saved several billion dollars compared to what we did by getting the Finns and the Swedes to so do it. So it was commercially more viable for us to take on the well, Chinese it was, company. Clearly. So it was, it, it was it, obviously a uh, diplomatic choice, really. It was a, a national security. One. It was a political, it was a national security. And basically, the uh, communications ministry, DFAT, all of these places were rolled by the intelligence agencies and by defense. Now, the third factor in, in the relationship deteriorating, and I've indicated this already, is also with the Trump administration, they took a much harder line on China and gradually, and we've seen it just continue to build and build and build the sort of hard line that the United States has taken against China. And in a sense, this has influenced our view of China and our view. And so what is seen as China asserting itself is seen as aggression and a threat and a danger and something that we need to defend against. So it's gone from being a potentially benevolent you know, country to a country which is a threat. So national security has supplanted other considerations uh, and this is really, the, these three factors are really led to the, um, uh, the, I should say, the deterioration of relationship. And of course, China responded to, the, to this, um, and part of their response was um, these trade sanctions and cutting off diplomatic, you know, minister to minister and diplomatic uh, connections and various things like that. Um, and that's just made the situation, so it became a, a, a vicious circle. Two other things I'd also point out too, that is um, the uh, Abbott government and the the Morrison government were also at one stage very strong supporters of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, before the, you know, the US basically said, well, the BRI is a bad idea because it's spreading Chinese influence around the world. So again, just like Huawei, it's part of a geographic, you know, geopolitical struggle um, between that. So we walked back from the BRI, which was seen that, you know, certain ministers and people were being, and we went as far as passing legislation to cancel the Victorian state government's agreement on the BRI, which was a non-sovereign agreement anyway. But that's all part of that. And then you, you had, thing, and so a lot of this is actually tied back to the, 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 you know, the, the hostility, the national security related hostility 
the Huawei decision, the CFI, our view that they were doing things which were bad and were compromising our national security, and their views that we weren't being fair to them and that we were just doing as we were told by the Americans. And this is uh, this is the root of the problem. Now, a lot of journalists like to talk about the... Uh, the um, uh, what I was going to say, the... Uh, uh, the the inquiry, the COVID inquiry call in, in May 2020, and th- that was something also was seen very unhappy, un- hostile by the the Chinese. But that in itself, it was Australia that had called for the investigation. Correct. Oh, I think into the origins of COVID 19, specifically with regards to China, and this was regarded as very affronting. It was uh, towards the Chinese government, yeah, and it was done in in, in a really ham fisted way. Uh, it was done on the insiders on a Sunday morning. Now, at that time, diplomatically, the EU was working up a position to uh, an inquiry into the cause of COVID. Some of the GRULAC, the Latin American countries, were talking about Mexico and some of the Latin America talking about an inquiry. Um, but it wasn't going to be in your face like it was about China. It would be a more general inquiry, including in, in China. But we came out ahead of that, and we made this, and it isolated us, you know, and made us the lightning bolt, uh, shall we say, for their, their, you know, the lightning conductor from the the uh, um, for the Chinese over this this issue. It made Australia made itself the face of, of the inquiry. Well, it did too, way. just like we'd made ourselves the face on um, on uh, Huawei. Now, many many countries now have now effectively banned or curtailed Huawei, particularly outside the global south, but we were the first to do it. So we did a whole lot of things which were seen as extremely aggressive to the Chinese, um, and we were leading the pack. And so um, you know, if we sat back a little bit more, we may not have attracted as much attention. But these are this, so this is what is the root cause of the problem uh, and the differences between the two sides. And then we got into this rhetoric and all of this business too, and then, you know, they, they redid the rules on um, the FIRB on Chinese investment, and there were a whole series of investments turned back, which the Chinese claimed were contrary to chapter. Uh, and so things just got worse and worse and worse um, on, on the relationship. But is it on the mend? Well, it, 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 it's, it's on the mend, but it's not 100% fixed. It's not like it totally was before. Uh, what you've actually, if you have a look and you, you see that um, uh, by cutting the rhetoric on both sides, because the Chinese wolf warrior rhetoric about Australia was pretty offensive too, and and we cutting our rhetoric. Um, so if I, if I remember that, correctly, that was where it was a, um, a member of the foreign ministry, I think even a, a spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry had posted a picture of an Australian soldier, um, what was it, holding a knife to a... Uh, Middle Eastern child. That's, that, that's that absolutely correct. Mm. But that, there in were refer- other in there reference were, to Australian war crimes. I think at the time were there other examples of that. Well, there are other statements. There are a lot of statements on both sides about about the sort of thing. But that really, really stood out. And then and so there were a whole lot of uh, things. But by cutting the rhetoric, you know, the Albanese government, you have to give it credit. It's cut the, uh, most of the rhetoric. And this has eased things. So they can now, we've now got ministers talking to each other. They've lifted a few of the things, sanctions. But a lot of the sanctions still remain in place. And the Chinese still want more, uh, particularly in, in a, a return to more access for their investment 
and also on things like uh, their membership of the CPTPP and keeping Taiwan out of the CPTPP. And the third thing is also an anti-dumping. And you're probably aware the Chinese have taken three anti-dumping cases against us, but we've taken 111 against them. So it's a little bit lopsided. Um, so these are the sort of things. And, and until those are really dealt with, but also the thing, let's be frank, the thing that, that um, really complicates it and, and makes it very difficult to go back to where we were before are uh, uh, what you call the national security issues and various things and AUKUS and the Quad and various things like that, you know. It, that's changed it's reinforcement of Australia's positioning yeah. with America and other exactly. allies, yeah. which also seem to isolate China as well very implicitly. Well, it certainly does from, from the West, but I mean, China's not isolated from the global South. It's not isolated from the Middle East. It's not isolated from Latin America. Um, or Africa, uh, what you are seeing is you're seeing a lot of countries. I mean, take another country, Saudi Arabia, which was a very long-term American ally, is now trying to get balances in relationship with uh, with the Chinese. Uh, yeah, and is not uh, doing that because they basically are seeing that the world's becoming multipolar, and you can have a balance each way. Some countries, because of their alliance with the United States, like Australia and Japan, for example to the Philippines and maybe the ROK also are tilting more towards the US. But a lot of countries are basically trying to get some sort of balance, uh, you know, and don't necessarily see China as a threat or a bad thing per se. Um, so, but, you know, you have to, you give credit to a credit's due to the Albanese government. It has actually be, you know, cut a lot of the, the nastiness out of the relationship and stopped it going into free fall. I mean, Penny Wong herself said, we've stabilized the relationship. They haven't returned before, and I doubt if it will return before, certainly as long as we're pushing AUKUS and various things like that and, and are clearly identifying uh, in the defense DSR, Defense Strategic Review, that our main concern is helping the Americans to fight the Chinese uh, on that sort of issue. It's clearly not going to go back to where it was before. And I go back to the comment that this senior Chinese diplomat made to me last year. He said, well, you know, when we signed up diplomatic relations for you, we knew about ANZUS, we expected ANZUS. But you guys, this is what they say, have gone way beyond ANZUS now. Yeah? Mm. Uh, in, uh, towards it's militarized us. itself. Yeah, militarized. So, yes, the relationship, you know, has stabilized and we're an important economic partner for them. They are an important partner for us. Uh, as I said before, you know, if we were to lose the total market there, the country would go in, into a deep recession, if not a depression. And also, if we were to cut off our, you know, supply to them, because our iron ore is very, very important to them, uh, the quality and the amounts only, there are only two other um, sources they possibly could get the quality of the iron ore that we have. And also in the volume, one is Brazil from Vale. Of course, Brazil had a lot of problems because they had the tailings mine collapse and then they had COVID going through and their mines were closed for a couple of months because of COVID outbreaks in Brazil. Uh, and then there is a, another large iron ore development which is going to come on in the future, which is very high quality iron ore in Guinea in West Africa. And people often talk about that, that China would be looking to do that. But sailing from Western Australia straight to China is faster and cheaper and that it is coming right around from Brazil, around the Cape of uh, uh, Cape Horn, 
or bringing it the whole way Cape of Hope, Hope, Good Hope around Africa to China. So the, these, you know, so we do have some. And it can be reliably done in Australia. Big mm. And it can be reliably done. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. Our, our biggest, our biggest uh, companies and some of our biggest expertise in, in any industry is mining. Absolutely for yeah. Australia. So it, mm. it, it is a very important. So it's a very vexed relationship. I mean, it could have been handled better. It can be handled better now, but. I mean, the Chinese have got certain red lines they have, but I think, you know, as long as we have this sort of strategic contradiction, there's always going to be tension in the relationship and it won't reach the level that it previously was at or it potentially could be at uh, in, 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 in the future. So, so, Kevin, you have an, an extensive career within diplomacy and Australia's foreign ministry, DFAT. Um, how is Australia viewed across the world? Oh, Australia's generally seen as a pretty nice and benevolent country there's uh uh it's uh not the, it's not um uh seen as a shall we say a a, a a bad actor in the world um australians are generally seen in in, a, in quite positive light and in my career i've often i've often found that to be the case um the lifestyle the image overseas it's generally generally pretty good, um, and uh, you know, Australia has a reasonable record in, in areas like development aid uh, and in playing positive roles uh, in the the world um, um, in the world uh, in organisations like the WTO and the UN and various things like that. There are some some countries which you know see us as being too close to the United States and perhaps uh, just a follower of the US. But I mean, that's generally at a political elite level. I mean, if you distinguish between the political elite and ordinary people, well, ordinary people think, uh, you know, Australia is a cool place to, to to visit or to possibly live in there. And, uh, you know, not, not, not a bad, bad area. At the elite level, yeah, well, at the elite, there are some people who question our position, particularly those themselves who don't have a good relationship with the US. Uh, and also... Some people talk about a historical record with the Aborigines and various things like that, but it's not something that is front and center all the time uh, about Australia. So, you know, we have a relatively easy job uh, representing Australia overseas compared to some countries that have a very, very large historical baggage or have done things that, uh, you know, have uh, caused uh, a front in recent years. Um, but how would you how would you define? I mean, I think we're going to probably a more profound question. But what is power on an international stage? Uh, power on the international stage. Well, I mean, there they people talk about soft power, hard power, sharp power. I mean, that's become a very big debate. And you know, if you want to, if you read Foreign Affairs, that American magazine, uh, that's quite an often often debated, but. In in terms of power, power comes from economic, economic, uh, geographic position, uh, pol effective political me mechanism, and of course from military power. But also, if you want people uh, to, or countries to think well of you, often it's good to to be seen as being a benign sort of place with a, a good lifestyle and welcoming and various things like that. So Australia in itself has a reasonably good uh, soft power uh, arsenal. 
from a point of view, it's also given that you know Australia is in the top in the G20 and it's economically powerful. It's, it's it derives you know it's it's um, position in the world from that. It's obviously not in the first rank of economic powers, but it's seen as as a country with a reasonably high standard of living and a good economic power. Uh, and again, Australia also is seen as having played, as I mentioned before, you know, relatively positive political roles in. You know, in the UN, right from you know 1945, and the first um, uh, president of the um, General Assembly was an Australian, um, and uh, right through there, in their activity on nuclear weapons and various other sort of humanitarian issues, uh, d- d- derives power. On the military side, well, quite frankly, yeah, there are some countries. You see, as I've just mentioned before, you know, our involvement in the Second Iraq War. And uh, you know, uh, our alliance with the U.S. does bring both both positive and negative views. I mean, certainly when you're talking to the Americans, and certainly for what it, for what it's worth, all our ambassadors and all our pe- politicians like to talk about our alliance with the U.S. going back to the World War One. You know, you know, we've been involved in every single war the Americans, major war the Americans have been involved in. Yeah, you know, that can cut both ways. Let's say it's like you're a good friend, but others say, well, you look like a you're uh, maybe uh, you know, just running with uh, the big dogs, aren't you? Mm. But as long as we don't, as long as we're not the lap dog. Yeah, well, I didn't say that, but you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, but uh, there, it it does too. I mean, uh, also the fact that Australia, you know, people who know Australia see it's a multicultural country. See, it's a country. It's an open country. So it's rel- it's relatively positive. I mean. In my 34 years in DFAT, I rarely incur- encountered people with hostile views of, of Australia. Uh, I said sometimes the Aboriginal issue comes up. Sometimes uh, I do recall my posting in Singapore in 1996 when Pauline Hansen uh, first came on the stage and uh, her talk about Asians. Well, that caused a lot of concern in Malaysia and Singapore, and we had to do some work on that back then. But these are sort of minor glitches, you know. Um, and now, you know, and also people have been critical for us for being involved in the Iraq War and various things like that. So, yeah, this is to get a fair balance. But overall, it's relatively positive. So Australia has reasonably good economic power, reasonably good military power, political good political standing, and it does have some soft power uh, in in that in in the in, in that regard. Uh, you know, and that's more related to lifestyle and and the image of Australia rather than you know we don't have the Hollywood. Necessary. I mean, you might have Mad Max and a few movies that are well known around the world, but you know we don't have that huge sort of uh, uh, soft power that, say, France and such has. But um, uh, and of course, talking about other countries, I mean, I was always amazed. You know, France, for example, uh, you know, uh, when I was ambassador in Saudi Arabia uh, to promote Australian culture in Saudi Arabia, you know, we had a budget of around ten thousand dollars. And my French colleague, puts a few cans of beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you're you're expected to get you know sponsorship from companies. Whereas I talked to the French ambassador, and he had over a million euros to spend each year on promoting French culture. That's incredible. Yeah, but there's very strong, very strong links though between a lot of the um, the Arabian oh, Peninsula absolutely. and France. Oh, in the whole of the Middle East, you know. I mean, I I, I very I'm not an Arabist. I'm a Chinese linguist and. I had very little Arabic when I was there, and I found that if I couldn't speak in English to some of the diplomats, 
uh, I often drop back into French, and uh, you know because a lot of certainly the North Africans, you know, the Algerians, the Tunisians, the Moroccans, they all speak French. A lot of Egyptians speak French. A lot of Lebanese, a lot of Syrians speak French, and quite a lot of Saudis. Interestingly. The foreign minister, when I was there, he's now passed away. He was foreign minister for about 40 years, Prince Saud al-Faisal. He's probably quite famous. I mean, he, he studied uh, at, at a French lycée and then, uh, as well as English. And then he, when he went to Princeton uh, in the 1970s, early 70s, he studied his, did his degree in French. Yeah, so he specialized in French. So uh, a lot of them uh, in the elite in the, the, in the Arab world. English is Arabic, obviously, is the first language, but there's, English is the second language and French mm. is the third. So You've also had um, time where you've worked in, in Russia. Um, could you maybe give an insight to listeners about the relationship between China and Russia? Because since the, U- the Ukrainian war, we've, from a lot of Western countries, have seen a kind of isolation of Russia. But China hasn't engaged in anything close to that. And it's almost seen like there's been a, a tightening of that relationship. How would you describe it? Well, I mean, at, at the base, what drives Russia and China together are geostrategic interests um, uh, more than anything else. Uh, they, they have a, a, a long history of antagonism, but also periods of really good friendship. Um, historically, the czarist Russia... Um, through the Treaty of Nerchinsk and another treaty, I've forgotten his name, in the 19th century, stripped away a lot of areas which were previously controlled by uh, the, the, um, the Mo- uh, not the Mongols, the, the Manchu uh, from the Qing dynasty and which were part of China. Uh, and so there was a, a historical antagonism. I mean, China used to view Russia, bizarrest Russia as one of the eight countries, you know, the eight imperial powers that uh, oppressed China, you know, in the so-called century of humiliation. Uh, a lot of that changed, though, with the rise of communism. And e- well, even before that, with the KMT, I mean, Sun Yat-sen, who led the 1911 revolution, uh, was also quite close to the Soviets. Uh, Soviet Union was the first uh, major country to recognize the Republic of China under uh, Sun Yat-sen. And uh, there was a lot of connections. And, of course, even Chiang Kai-shek had connections with the Soviet Union. And his son, Zhang Jingguo, who was later president of Taiwan for 10 years, he spent uh, 11 years in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, that And our embassy building in Moscow was a previous Chinese embassy in the IROC and the PRC. And during my time there, and now the Chinese would always like to come and visit there because both the Taiwanese and the Chinese, because it had such resonance for their history, and Mao had stayed there, and Zhou and Lai and Deng and all those people. So the Australian embassy, so the Australian embassy or representative office residence was actually previously uh, belong or an asset of China. Yeah, first the um, ROC, and then after forty nine the PRC. Um, but I'll, co- I'll well, come. And then Australia. And then Australia. Well, we got it. What happened was in in nineteen fifty nine. Uh, well, from 1927 to 1949, what's uh, 13 Kropotinsky Perialok in Moscow? It's where the ambassador's residence is. That was the residence. That was the uh, part of the Chinese embassy and the residence of the Chinese ambassador. And then in 49, of course, obviously the Soviet Union recognized um, PRC and it handed to them. 
And it was their residence till 59, till they up in the Lenin Hills, being near the Moscow University, they built a really big Chinese embassy. Uh, and then at that time, it was empty. And we had suspended uh, diplomatic relations, as you know, in 56, because of the Petrov affair. What was the Petrov affair? Well, the Petrov affair in 1954 was he was defected. He was uh, at the embassy in Can- Soviet embassy in Canberra. He and his wife defected uh, to um, to Australia and to the West, and um, that led to uh, a, a downgrading of relationship between Australia and the Soviet Union. Uh, and then we reestablished diplomatic relations, full diplomatic relations with Moscow in '59. And at that time, um, we came back to Moscow. Uh, that building, which belonged to the Russian government was empty. So we got that and we've had that ever since as our embassy, part of our embassy and our, our residence. And um, while the significance also you know, for the ROC was that Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Jingguo and many of the famous ROC people before 1949 had stayed there. And of course, Mao himself had visited there in 1949 and 1957. Uh, and you had Zhou Enlai and Deng Xiaoping and many of their great leaders had. So there was always a great interest from the, both the Taiwanese and particularly the Chinese to visit the embassy and have a look at once, which was once theirs. Um, but to come back to say, so historically Russia and China, but the, 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 the Soviets supported the KMT and then they supported the, the communists at different times during that because they were seen as both as at that at that different times anti-imperialist forces and of course in 1949 that they recognized the PRC and then Mao went there and he spent three months in Moscow in 49-50 negotiating with the Soviets for support which he got for industrial support in the beginning of uh, of the development of the PRC so relations were very close in the 50s until the Great Leap Forward, and then there were ideological differences, and we can go in this in great detail, but there, basically there was a fallout over a whole lot of issues, just like Soviet position on the, the Quemoy crisis of 1958, the Soviets' refusal to provide nuclear weapon technology to the and also, most importantly, ideological Mao was continuing to move to the left, uh, to the left of, of uh, Khrushchev. This could be quite a good side point what, how would you differentiate the, the form of communism in, in China to the one that existed uh, in, in Russia at, in its own uh, time? Are we talking about now or the 1950s? Oh, previously. Well, I mean, naturally, communism is, is no longer a force in, in Russia. But when it was in its presence, how would you kind of distinguish it? Well, I mean, this, the, the, the Mao, Maoist ideas basically came from um, a peasant rebellion and Mao and most of his leaders were not intellectuals in the, or urban people they came from and most of the supporters came from the rural area and Mao himself also was very much driven by the idea of con- maintaining a continuous revolution I'm not talking about Trotsky here but actually continuing that and continuing class struggle and maintaining that and moving very fast from from what you call feudalism through to socialism and communism much faster than that. So he was very attracted to ideas like the Great Leap Forward, which would be in mass industrialization using uh, peasant labor, collectivized labor in, in the countryside. Now, the Soviet Union was based, was a bit more orthodox than its Marxist-Leninist beliefs 
in the sense that you need to build an urban proletariat and the urban proletariat leads to industrialization and you move through that way. So it's a much more staged way of, of moving. Mao, he believed that by using and harnessing China, what he called China's great power, which were the nearly 1 billion or 800 million at that time peasants, and by unleashing their forces, you can industrialize very quickly and move to socialism and on to communism much quicker. He also was always of the view that we need to maintain, and he maintained this right up until he flipped in the early 70s and decided to become friends with Nixon and Kissinger. But basically, in the 50s and 60s, they were ultra-left. It had to be class struggle, had to be struggle against imperialism, and they felt that Khrushchev had, was going a bit soft, you know, in talking about detente with the Americans, backing down over the Cuban, Cuban Missile Crisis as far as they saw. But it's not necessarily fair because the Soviets did actually get American nukes out of Turkey in return for pulling them out of Cuba. But um, but he was generally seen as being a bit too soft and not radical enough and, and, and a bit of a betrayal. Um, Mao also having been, you know, as one Chinese said to me, you know, in, in, in Russia you had Lenin and you had Stalin and they were the two important characters in establishing the Soviet Union. In China, Lenin and Stalin were actually merged into one person, Mao. So he, so because he led the revolution and then he established the country and he put laid down the ideological ideological positions for that, and so he was unchallengeable. Now, he pr said that in many of these books that Mao, if you read biographies, Mao was was quite respectful of Stalin, even though Stalin sort of to look down on him. Um, but Mao didn't respect Khrushchev that very much and felt that you know. Khrushchev had not created the revolution, you know, had not created the Soviet Union, but Mao had created the revolution and the PRC. You know, so he, he, you know, he should be the leader of world communism. So there were a whole lot of these factors. And then there was also the nationalist factor. Like I was before, basic distrust historically of, of Russia and its territories. Now, one of the, the really important, if we skip forward now to one of the really important things to the post-Soviet era, um, is that they have China and Russia, Russian Federation, have agreed on their, their boundary. And that's been very, very important in actually reducing the, the tension because China accepted and they defined the border uh, between Russia and China, and that's taken a lot of the sting out of the relationship, a lot of the problem of the relationship, but also from a geostrategic point of view, that's also very helpful for them too, because during the, the Cold War, uh, they were multi, I mean, I think the Soviets had something like 50 divisions on the Chinese border during the Sino-Soviet split, and the Chinese had 60 divisions on their border. Now there's only a handful of troops on both border guards on both sides, so it actually, from a geostrategic position, this great vulnerability that they both have have been removed geostrategically so they can both focus, in Russia's case, on the West and Ukraine, in China's case, out into the, you know, to the oceans and to facing the United States. But so primarily what drives there are a whole lot of factors. Um, China and, and Russia see themselves both as being opposed by the United States and its allies. They have common strategic and geostrategic interests. 
there is some economic um, uh, complementarity. Russia is an energy supplier. China needs energy. There's the the border issue I was talking about. That you know you free up this vast border. You don't have to militarize it. You can use it for doing other things. So there are a lot of things, and also it seems uh, to get to all evidence that um, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping get on quite well personally. Um, you know, there's not the personal animus like there was between Mao and Khrushchev and uh, you know other leaders. Uh, in the past, they seem to get on quite well. Uh, and also they both believe that the world is moving to a multipolar world. And, uh, they, you know, they were, um, C was quoted on the steps after that, uh, when his most recent visit to Moscow saying, you know, uh, the world is changing as it hasn't changed in a hundred years and we are leading the change. Yeah. He said that to Putin. So they both generally believe, and Putin apparently he nodded his head in agreement. They both genuinely believe they're changing the world to a multipolar world and that the unipolar American moment is gone and that together they are. But they cooperate. They have common interests, you know. They don't like color revolutions. Uh, they don't like, you know, being constrained and all of those various things. And uh, another factor is, too, that China has, um, in the military sphere and in space and various things like that, over the last... 10, 20 years, uh, obtained a lot of very useful technology, uh, which has been able to use to build up its military and to build up its space capabilities. Um, and a lot of that, you know, Russian technology has been very, very helpful for them. And it doesn't mean they just don't buy it. It's not that they just buy it and that's it. They buy it and then they reverse engineer it and then they develop their own technology. Um, so there, there is cooperation. On, on the question of Ukraine, well, the uh, the Chinese have been careful not to be, because um, they talk about their ally, their relationship with Russia not as an alliance, but as a partnership. Uh, and so they haven't really wanted to get involved in all the sort of sanctions problems that might come from, from um, being seen as, you know, being too deeply engaged in the war. But by the same token, they're providing political and economic support well, political and economic support through trade, yeah, and trade has really taken off between Russia and China over that time. So, you know, as the window to the west is partially being closed, the window to the east is opening up for, for, for the Russians to sell their uh, their resources to China. China is getting it at friendship prices too, just like the Indians are getting it at friendship prices at the moment um, for that. So, there, you know, some mutual benefit, but. It's a geopolitical is driving them together. I mean, I don't think they're great, great friends and bosom buddies, but they have some common values and have some, certainly have common interests. And I've always been of the realist belief that interests are far more important than values. And um, uh, they uh, that's what's driving that's what's driving them together. And um, just that. You know, with the differences that came out of the Sino-Soviet split that eventually led China to flip from being in the socialist camp to supporting the United States against the Soviets in the late in the 70s, that came from China's interest that they felt that they were threatened by the Soviet Union. After what happened in Hungary, what happened in Czechoslovakia, that the Soviets seemed to think that if you know they could intervene in another socialist country if it's not doing the right thing. Um, now the common interests are, are the interests of Moscow and Beijing are much more aligned 
from a geostrategic perspective. So you also got to really see a, I'd say, pivotal moment within the development of what emerged out of the collapse of the Soviet Union in your time in Moscow. Did your experience of the development and growth of these institutions, uh, how did that inform your view of or your understanding of how Russian political leadership is, is done and conducted today? Russian scholars basically said to me that Putin's Russia has more in common with Tsarist Russia than it has with Communist Russia. In a sense that you have, you've gone from a party structure, um, the Communist Party and such, basically back towards more personal rule, more nationalistically based rule. Because for the Soviet Union, you know, was uh, used to talk about inter- socialist internationalism, and talk about um, you know changing the world and making the whole world red. Well, Ru- Russia's interests now and the institutions these days are very much directed at Russian nationalist interests, uh, and that is you know making sure that it's near countries from, from the most obviously Ukraine, but also Georgia and various other places maintain are in as a buffer or maintain are you know safe within their their sphere of influence. So from a geopolitical point of view, that's the sort of the, the position that Russia has taken. They put in, I mean, after the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, Yeltsin basically very much moved away from the communist system and there was an attempt to, um, shall we say, to westernize the country as much as it was possible. I'm talking about from an economic point of view, move to capitalism, move towards elected presidency, remove the Communist Party and that sort of structure from from Russia, uh, from from Russia, uh, and that was seen as pretty chaotic, uh, and so Russia was looking for someone uh, and a system which would uh, would appeal to the Russians, which would be, should I say, yeah, more authoritarian. Uh, and more giving more stability. Now the early days of Yeltsin, you know, were, were quite popular, but he was very unpopular by the time he left the presidency in 1999, uh, largely because of economic failure and the fact that you know the the capitalization or the training of capitalism uh, in the country basically turned the country into uh, 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 you know in, in, into chaos and poverty in many ways. So Putin was seen, and he was quite popular in the early days of the 2000s. He was seen as being young. He was seen as being dynamic and also someone who could you know, strengthen the country. Over time, he's become more and more of a dictator and more and more of a czar over the period of time. He's maintained the sort of capitalist structure in the country, but he was able to tame the oligarchs, which Yeltsin basically couldn't have, and if they, the oligarchs work for him, and if they don't, then they're out in their ear, like Khodorkovsky and Kuczynski, and uh, you know the various ones have fallen out with him over, over the Berezovsky, and various people have fallen out over the years with him. So it's, it's become more and more centralized, more and more personalized. It's become more and more like the Tsar in that regard. Uh, I think generally most people, I mean, he, I think Putin doesn't have a, a really a high regard certainly not for Gorbachev and certainly not for the Soviet Union. Um, 
he does talk about the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. But that's the sense that meant that, you know, catastrophe because Moscow was no longer in control. Um, it, it's, he's not sort of harking back for for uh, Soviet communism or the Gorbachev era or anything like that. He's more interested in, in the national, the, from a national nationalist perspective um, and in doing that. And I think that's what drives him very much a belief that, you know, that historically Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire and it really needs to come back, back not necessarily to be part of Russia, but make sure that it is, you know, uh, like some of the other so, uh, former Soviet republics, compliant with Moscow's interests uh, rather than anyth anything else in that regard. Uh, so he's not trying to rebuild the USSR. He's trying to basically make sure that Russia and its near compatriots are I can operate in Moscow's interest. You also um, were in Moscow at the time of uh, the 2002 Moscow theatre hostage situation, where there were Australians that were taken part of, uh, were taken hostage um, by Chechen terrorists. Do you, would you like to share that experience to us? Yeah, that was very interesting. I, at that time, I was I was posted to Moscow at, at that time in October 2002 as the deputy head of mission, so I was number two in the embassy. Uh, and our ambassador was back in Australia on leave uh, when the theater was seized on the 23rd of October 2002. And during that period of time, it transpired that there were two Australians um, who were among the 800-plus hostages taken by the Chechens in the, the theater, uh, the Teatr na Dubrovska in, in Moscow. And um, I was involved in quite detailed... Um, Negotiations with uh, the in contact with Canberra, with the uh, f uh, with the Russian authorities at the start of it, um, but also later on, um, the Russia the Chechens were allowing the foreigners to um, call their embassy peoples from their embassy um, and talk to them to try and encourage them so that we would put pressure on the Russians to accede to their demands. So basically what the Chechens wanted, and there were a lot of them, there were 48 altogether, 48 terrorists altogether. In the end, um, roughly half male, half of them were men, half of them were women, and they were very heavily armed, and they had, a lot of the women had the suicide belts on at that time. Um, basically what they demand were release of prisoners from Chechnya held by the Russians, and also that they would be able to fly out you know, from from um, from Moscow. You know, if, uh, the, it wasn't necessarily a suicide mission for all of them to be there. Anyway, the Russians weren't going to have any part of that. So, what they did was that um, through a series of they allowed the they returned the mobile phones to the foreigners and they called and then they eventually were given our numbers um, because I was running a team where we were running a twenty four hour center at that time now. The thing to remember was Canberra was at that time were following us, but they were a bit distracted because it was only two weeks after the Bali bombing. So consular in Canberra were very much distracted by that. I mean, they were following what we were doing, um, but we had a lot of latitude to do that. So I ended up talking on several occasions, and one of my colleagues did with the two hostages, and it was really quite chilling because um, you could hear in the background... Uh, uh, the Chechen talking in Russian, issuing their demands, 
the female hostage who was uh, originally a Ukrainian or uh, Australian, then translating to the other hostage who was a a, a, a normal a, a, um, a, a Australian Australian, and then passing it on, so you could actually hear that. So. You know, it was actually here. And then we would talk back, you know, respond and say what we are trying to do. And we were basically, you know, we're doing that and we're doing the best we can and then feeding back and that would be held back to them. And then there were some chilling moments where they talked about, you know, if they threatened to start shooting the hostages, one Russian, one foreigner, every hour unless they were met. So there was a series of these things that went on uh, from the 23rd to the 26th of October 2002. And of course, as you'll be recall, um, at that time, uh, in, uh, uh, on the morning of the 26th, early in the morning of the 26th, the Russians assaulted the, the Russian special forces, assaulted the theater. Uh, they used, what they had done is that they had um, been able to tunnel into the walls and from below through the sewers. And they had then been able to place um, a type of pethidine type gas um, related to fentanyl or something like that, which would knock people out. It was an aerosol. And that ha- was largely successful in, in actually incapacitating a lot of the, the terrorists. The problem was that several hundred people died because what happened was that a lot of people, were the hostages were knocked out. And as they were knocked out, some of them fell in such positions that they couldn't breathe. And they died, and there was quite a period of time. And then the Russian forces themselves, they got in. The, the Chechens had been assuming they would attack through the roof or through the door. Actually, they blew up the toilets, and they came up through the sewers, the commandos. Um, so they're like a big hall, you know, like any big hall, the very big toilets with lots of seat, lots of toilets. There. They blew them up, and they came up through the sewers, and that's how they got in there. By the time they got in, and they were covered with gas masks, a lot of the uh, the the, the the killer the terrorist the gunman had been um, incapacitated by the the gas, and they were able to knock off the ones that remi- remained. So in the end, there were only a handful of te- uh, hostages were killed actually by the terrorists, probably about five as I recall. But nearly three hundred of the eight hundred hostages died because by the time they evacuated them, obviously the military operation went on, and then they evacuated them. Other people had gone into comas. Some people had suffocated because they'd vomited, and other people had fallen in such a way that they couldn't breathe because this was such an effective gas they'd used. Um, so, in one ways, it was seen as being, you know, it was really quite a an outstanding military operation. But humanitarian, from a humanitarian point of view, it was an absolute disaster. The upside of it is we then had to try and find our Australians, and both of them survived, fortunately. And where they were at different hospitals, so we spent quite a bit of time during the day in the hospital trying to find the people in hospitals. But also, I was told by Canberra during the period to do media, so I was interviewed twice by uh, ABC. I was on Late Line, and another time I was interviewed, and I was on the BBC, and I was on Spanish radio. You know, quite a few people because among the embassies that were diplomats were there, not a lot of them were. Um, authorized to talk to the media. But I was, and part of that was because they were so busy handling the media in Australia because of Bali bombings. They didn't have the facilities to do it. So they said, why, you do it. You're on the ground. You do it. 
And so I had a, a, an unusual amount of discretion to actually talk. So I at different times I negotiated with the Russians uh, of meeting with um, uh, some people, um, uh, some from the FSB, which is the KGB, talking to them, talking to their foreign ministry people, talking to people in the military, talking also to uh, the Red Cross who were doing the negotiation between the terrorists and the Russian authority. So it was quite a, an amazing, it was one of the one or two most uh, outstanding parts of my career. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, from It was uh, exhilarating from, from that point of view. Uh, the tragedy at the end for the many people who died, of course. Um, but we had a small success in that both of our, our two Australian hostages survived and they returned to us safely to Australia. And we see, obviously, the, the importance of consular officers and a diplomatic corps uh, for countries like Australia in dealing with crises such as these. Why, why, I mean, sometimes there's question as to, on budgetary issues, on whether a country should continue to invest in that uh, foreign diplomacy. How would you go about justifying um, sustaining, you know, a vast network of embassies and consulates across the world? Well, a very simple answer is that everybody does it because it's self-evident how important it is. Um, but if you want to have influence, if you want to be able to deliver um, outcomes for your country, you need to be able to talk to other countries and you need people who understand that and understand the system and do that. And penny-pinching or focusing solely on the military response is just only one one way of doing things. Um, Australia, for a long time, has been among OECD countries down near the bottom on a per capita expenditure on, on diplomacy. Uh, and that's both under Labour and on, under coalition governments. Most recently, the, uh, the DSR talked about restoring our diplomatic... Um, uh, capabilities and it'd be good to see some money but in, in many ways you'd just be making up a lot of the stuff that's been removed before but um, if you have a look at countries which have uh, you know um, great in, great influence in the world it's usually through effectively through their diplomats uh, who can deliver the message and can understand and report and do analysis of what's going on in those countries so you know, it might seem as a former diplomat I'm self-serving by saying this but I think, uh, you know, the fact that other countries do it and the fact that we can deliver on a lot of issues, both consular and otherwise, uh, are, uh, are evidence of that. And, uh, you know, um, I think it's Churchill said that jaw, jaw is better than war, war. And uh, I think uh, also uh, in a very small microcosm of that, just looking at that, uh, the improvement in the relationship with China over the last couple of months has basically come from applying a bit more diplomacy uh, and a less sort of aggression. And that's begun to open some doors with uh, with the Chinese. And certainly diplomacy is, is an important skill. Why is Australia so deficient in comparison to other countries in investing in diplom its, its diplomatic core? Yeah, it's a good question about that. I mean, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say we're totally ineffective, but we've, we're basically... Uh, been operating on, on a basis where uh, we do the minimum uh, that is necessary rather than doing the maximum that we could we could do and that's gone on for a very long time um, 
part of it also, I suppose, is that, you know, there's a general view in Australia that uh, diplomat, uh, that, you know, uh, public servants are a waste of money and they are, there are other more effective ways to do that. Also, uh, defense, you know, and uh, the military tradition in Australia is always very highly regarded. And uh, so, therefore, when defense wants something, it gets something. And I had a, and uh, you can just see the difference in, in the matter. One of my colleagues was uh, a, uh, uh, acted as a deputy secretary in DFAT and then was appointed full time in DFAT uh, in defense. And uh, the shock of difference between the amount of money that, someone in defense had compared to in DFAT was remarkable. You know, as a, uh, as a acting deputy secretary in DFAT, uh, he had one, one EEA and he went across and, uh, when he entered the deputy secretary position in defense, he had, I think six or eight people in his office, you know? And, uh, so, uh, they, and, and, you know, historically because of Australia's you know, high regard for military tradition, I think defense has basically always more or less got what it what what it asked for, um, and um, and also you know, uh, one senior Australian politician um, said that to me, who held a very I won't say who it is, but held a very senior position uh, when this person was in opposition, and I had known them for quite some while. Uh, he said to me that um, DFAT is often its own worst enemy because it delivers quite effectively uh, with limited resources. So people in defense, uh, people say, well, they obviously don't need that, you know. Uh, they can get by with what they've got and they're delivering with what they got. And uh, this, uh, I won't, won't say who it is, but they. This, be- the squeaky wheel gets the uh, yeah, oil. Well, became- Whereas defense co- constantly screws up. You know, with defense projects which cost billions and billions of dollars, so the response to that is, "Oh, let's give them a couple more billion." Yeah, f- failure succeeds. Another element, and I've always found interesting uh, within diplomacy, is often the the statements made by uh, it, when the speeches, the statements made by a, a ministry or a foreign country. That there's often a certain, they seem very plain, almost like you know when you get one of those corporate brochures. There's a strange use of you know sun-dried words, things that seem very stuffy. But from what I understand, there's a there's a certain degree of detail hidden within all of it, and very embedded uh, references and and uh, and and meanings behind it all. Could you maybe elaborate a bit more on the importance of language within diplomacy? Well, you're you're absolutely right about that. I mean, what is put out on the record is always is almost always very very carefully vetted both at the public service diplomatic level and often at a ministerial level because what's written down can be held and used against you in the future but let me tell you as a diplomat of 34 years and a three times head of mission what is written down publicly is often a lot less than what we actually say privately or in documents we hand over privately uh, on that sort of thing. Um, some countries are more sensitive than others, but all countries have levels of sensitivity and you have to be careful what you say in a written document because they feel that they have to respond to that, especially if their citizens see it. Whereas if you give something over to a country making a strong point and it's not public and they choose not to make it public, well, they can absorb that without any loss of face. So, 
there's often, as I said, often what is said and handed over in in you know class in uh, confidential notes, and what's actually said sometimes is quite different from what is actually written. But what is written, yes, it is careful. You have to be careful because that it will go on the record, and not just the record for media now, but for historians will lo look at these documents in the future and draw conclusions from it. And um, uh, so it, it is uh, the language has to be very, very careful because you don't want to exacerbate a problem when you don't need to, and you don't want to make something that you want to deal with privately, which is sensitive. You don't want to make it public. Um, and um, uh, I mean, I on my own personal example, and this is post-diplomatic, is that uh, after the AUKUS announcement, I, I met with several Asian ambassadors uh, who I knew in Canberra, and what they said to me off the record about AUKUS was not what they were saying publicly. Um, you know, there were a lot more, many of them were expressed a lot more concerns than they were saying publicly. And I would warrant that, that when they talk privately to DFAT or De Department of Defense with what they're saying is about their concerns are, are stronger. Now that's just a bit, and that's, there have been many, many examples of that in my career. So you've suggested there that um, the, the criticisms that have been expressed in regards to AUKUS have not been as loud as what is actually believed and and thought privately by some other Asian nations. Is that correct? I would say so. Um, most of these the countries, particularly our Southeast Asian neighbours, realise that what they're going to say and do is not going to have any any direct effect on 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 this. So they basically they may not be one hundred percent happy with it, but they'll acquiesce to it. They'll tolerate it itself. But you know they will express their their concerns um, privately about this. Uh, on non-proliferation issues. Uh, one of the other things is a lot of these countries I think seem they can understand why we are maybe talking with the Americans, but they're not. Can't, it doesn't make much sense to bring the British back into it. It was one, as one 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 head of mission said to me, uh, bringing the British back into this region. Does Australia think it's 1923 rather than 2023? Maybe in 1923, the British had some sort of clout in this part of the world. They don't now. So you've also, you know, spent an incredible amount of time uh, within Saudi Arabia. Um, it, from from preparing for this interview, I think what I what I really discovered was that Saudi Arabia really is a uh, a very important mm, player now, absolutely, in, in a, on a global stage. How much do you think? How much do people underestimate the importance of Saudi Arabia today? Oh, look, I mean, I was talking about the sort of positive stereotypes we had of Australia before, that we're nice, friendly people, we have kangaroos and beaches, and, you know, we're nice people, that we have a positive stereotype. Outside the Islamic world, Taiwan, uh, sorry, not Taiwan, Saudi Arabia has a very, very unfortunate stereotype that, you know, it's uh, people who cut off people's head and oppress women and do all this sort of thing, all this sort of thing. I'm not saying... They're different, um, but Saudi Arabia, uh, that this is not true. These things that happen, they do have the death penalty and they do have a different view of the role of women and many other issues like that. But, you know, Saudi Arabia is often underestimated as seen as just being people who live off the oil and uh, being backward. And it didn't help them also that 19, 15 of the 19 terrorists who, uh, you know, on 9 11 were Saudis and bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia. 
So it, it, it creates a very, really negative oppression of the country. But it is very different country, and it's very much an Islamic country, and it, 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 its values are quite different from, from Western countries and, and Australia. Uh, its strategic interests um, sometimes were very closely aligned to the United States, and this is one of the sort of ironies until very recently. Saudi Arabia was very closely aligned to the U.S., notwithstanding the fact that its values, you know, was so different from the American values. But and this is like I was saying before, interests are always more important than values. Its, its interests uh, did align with the U.S. and uh, with us, too, and various things, and, uh, yeah, in counterterrorism and in... Uh, oil prices and various things. Now, things have moved recently because Saudi Arabia is under Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. He has got a different view. He's a different generation. He basically seems to be part of this part of the world, uh, part of the view of, of part of the world that sees that the world is now moving to a multipolar world and that America's influence is less than it once was. They still want to be friends with America, but they don't necessarily have to do everything that America wants them to do. And they're also, he's been personally miffed by the way that, uh, you know, uh, Biden's administration have talked about Saudi Arabia as a pariah, you know, to the, the Khashoggi events and things like that. Um, so um, their interests are moving, and they can see that they have interest in, in basically getting a bit of a balance and landing and. A lot of that has also come from the fact that now for the the GCC countries, China is their biggest trading partner, biggest market. What are the GCC so countries? The, the, the um, Gulf Cooperation Council countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. Most of those, if not all of them, certainly Saudi's case, uh, find that China is their largest trading partner, largest investor. Uh, they, you know, so there's a lot of economic. Interest. I think there are about sixty percent of that block, that economic block, in terms of it would be like that contribution. It would be, it'd be predominant. I mean, the U.S. is not as dependent on Middle East oil as it once was because of all the fracking and the oil it has in its own country, and uh, it imports from also from Mexico and uh, Canada. Um, so uh, you know, so Saudi Arabia is moving in that, but Saudi Arabia is very important because it's a G20 country. It's very influential in the Islamic world. It's very influential in the Arab world. Uh, and um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, he's being, the Saudis are being a lot under him, they've been, and his father, King Salman, about being a lot more diplomatically adventure, adventuresome and reaching out. And also, you know, are willing to do something that they were never before is, you know, to reach out to Iran and allow you know, uh, China to act as the imprimatur on the reestablishment of those relations. And that's pretty shocking because to the, everyone, including the Americans, because for the last 50 years, any deals that were ever done in the Middle East were always done by the Americans. Yeah. Well, and China's involvement in that Saudi Arabia-Iran deal was hugely significant. significant. Hugely significant. And also, I mean, I mean, because the Americans could never do that. They don't have diplomatic relations with Iran and they've been, you know, in effect of Cold War with Iran for 50, 40 years now. Um, but China was able to do that. But in the past, Saudi Arabia would not have ever looked to China to do that. But China, under you know Xi Jinping and its global strategic initiative and various things, is reaching out and you know is, is portraying itself as a world power. So this comes back to what I was saying before: with the, the you know you're getting the the, the multipolar world uh, with China, 
And, you know, the two big poles being the United States being the biggest, China the second, but you also have other countries, India and, and Russia and such, having a, a multipolar role. Um, so, uh, yeah, as a, uh, you know, the world is, is, is changing in, in that regard. And, and Saudi Arabia is engaged in that. But it is very important. You know, it's, it's a swing state in, on oil prices. And twice in October last year and then last week, they have defied the Americans on oil production. Uh, yeah, to suit their own interests. Whereas historically, if you look, if you look historically, except during the Arab-Israeli War in '73, other than that period, they've always more or less done what the Americans wanted on oil prices, and that's one of the reasons why they became such an important ally to the U.S. for so, so long time. With, within recent news, we've seen the merger for the uh, Gulf Tour organizations, LIV and the PGA. Uh, and a lot of this has been viewed. So one of these players is is backed by um, Saudi Arabian funding, and has been viewed as as a very important step in its kind of self of Saudi Arabia's self confidence in projecting its soft power. How have you viewed the, those events? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. They're sort of trying to portray themselves as being more than uh, a strict Islamic country that uh, beheads people and oppresses women. They're actually trying as part of it's an outreach. I mean, they, they are not going to democratize or move in that way, but they can do things which are attractive to the West, which includes liberalizing on the arts, which were never allowed under the Wahhabis before, but also things like getting involved in sport and supporting golf. And, uh, you know, it, it's a part of the normalize and, 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 and um, you know, uh, making them look like a more normal country and a more approachable country. It's, it's part of that. And, uh, and, um, you know, they, with a younger generation, Mohammed bin Salman, I mean, all the kings, and his father's elderly, of course, but the kings before, people who were rulers like King Abdullah and Fahd and uh, Khalid and various things, they'd all been quite elderly and quite conservative. Uh, you know, he's relatively young and outlooking. The interesting thing about Mohammed bin Salman is that he was not educated overseas. He was educated entirely in, the, in uh, Saudi Arabia. But he seems to be in tune with a little bit more of what the world is like at this stage and, you know, trying to, to reach out for Saudi, you know? Well, Kevin, thank you very much for today. Um, I believe the uh, listeners will also agree. Um, so thanks again for coming along. My pleasure.